You're listening to a sermon from Midtown Presbyterian Church in Phoenix, Arizona. If you'd like to learn more about Midtown and its ministry, please visit us at midtownpres.org or follow us on Instagram or Facebook. Back in December of 2014, a guy named Vivek Murphy began his tenure as the 19th Surgeon General in the history of the U.S. This basically make him, made him America's doctor. The Surgeon General, if you didn't know, acts as kind of the ultimate public authority on health and well-being in America. And they actually oversee more than 6,000 officials across the country who are protecting and promoting the health of the U.S. And we're not just talking about telling people to sneeze into their sleeve or eat their vegetables. We're talking about real health crises. That's what surgeon generals often deal with. Think like yellow fever outbreaks and the Spanish flu and HIV and AIDS epidemics and responses to hurricanes and tornadoes, that sort of stuff. They have major sway in public opinion when it comes to health. But Vivek, when he became Surgeon General, he wasn't drawn to the role because of that major public space. He wasn't drawn to it by impressive authority. He actually never wanted to be in the public eye at all. His inspiration for becoming a doctor was drawn from his parents. They were both doctors. And he actually worked with them in their practice, doing filing things, growing up, and that sort of thing. And he remembered distinctly their passion for people. They prioritized compassion in their practice, empathy in their practice. There were times where the insurance companies would get mad at his dad because he spent too much time listening to his patients, too much time understanding what their real needs were. That's what Vivek wanted in his own medicinal practice. And so when he became America's doctor, the first thing he did was learn about the people of America. He didn't want to make assumptions based on data or numbers. He wanted to hear people's stories. And so he took a team and traveled all around America, small rural towns and big urban centers. He talked to teachers and lawyers and pastors and politicians and community organizers. He wanted to hear what was going on in people's lives. And after this journey, Vivek and his team found a striking trend, what they termed a dark thread that ran underneath our nation. They said that this thread was the primary health crisis of our time. And it wasn't obesity. It wasn't a rise in cancer diagnoses. It wasn't addiction or the opioid crisis or smoking. Those are all problems, and they said, we need to deal with those problems. But there's another one. A dark thread that runs underneath all of those problems. It's loneliness. They said that we are in the middle of an epidemic of loneliness, that loneliness is ravaging our nation. And in the years since their study, this point of view has been borne out. According to a recent Harvard study, 61% of Americans between the ages of 18 and 25 report feeling loneliness frequently or almost all of the time. 61%. And 51% of mothers with young children reported the same thing. There are exponentially more people who report being lonely than people who have diabetes, than people who have cancer, and than people who smoke. And our feelings of loneliness are wreaking havoc on our health. According to Vivek and his team, persistent feelings of loneliness have a similar effect on human lifespans to smoking 15 cigarettes a day. Loneliness is directly connected to other unhealthy behaviors like drug abuse and violence and addiction. It's a condition that creates all sorts of unhealthy symptoms. We're in the middle of an epidemic of loneliness. And if we're being honest with ourselves in this room, many of us 
have felt or do feel this dark thread running through our lives or through the lives of those around us. And it can be easy to allow feelings of loneliness to start to define us or define the way we see the world. We move from feeling lonely to starting to believe the statement, I am actually alone. In fact, that message, I am alone, it's reinforced all the time in us and around us, from the inside and from the outside. We believe we are alone because of internal messaging, oftentimes. We think that the world doesn't really need us or that no one really cares all that much about us or that others might reject us if we truthfully live who we are and so we wear a mask. We hide our loneliness underneath that mask. We buy into the lie that we're alone. But we also hear I am alone messaging from outside of ourselves, too. American culture encourages us to be highly individualistic. The people we elevate in our culture are the self-made people. People who were strong in and of themselves and carved their own path in life. We think that going it alone or making it on our own is somehow valiant or good or healthy. And the implication is that most of us don't often feel like we can be honest with our weaknesses or our needs. Think about how often you're interacting with someone and they ask, hey, how have you been? And how instinctive it is to just say, good, I'm good. We just say that automatically, even when it's not true. We don't have space to talk about where we might be weak or in need. We're taught to present this nicely put together outer image, one that shows we can handle life on our own. And social media doesn't help with this either, as we all know, right? We say we use social media to connect. Do we really? I mean, every once in a while, we make some connection, but by and large, social media just makes us more lonely because we're shown this precisely curated feed of others that's telling us how amazing and remarkable their life is, and we do that while we're sitting on our boring, lonely couch or bed. Right? In the middle of our ordinary lives, we see their extraordinary lives. That's what social media often does for us. We compare our ordinary days with the extraordinary days of others, and it only reinforces loneliness in us. It reinforces the pervasive belief that I am alone. We're continuing in a sermon series here at Midtown entitled, You've Heard It Said, But Jesus Says to You. And this whole series has been about evaluating the notions or phrases or ideas that are common in our culture, and then bringing those notions and phrases and ideas to the scriptures and seeing what Jesus has to say to us, the truth that Jesus has to say to us about ourselves and about God and about the world. And today, we're exploring this notion. You've heard it said, I am alone. But Jesus says to you, I am with you. You've heard it said, I am alone, but Jesus says to you, I am with you. You guys, the statement, I am alone, is a lie. The truth is that even in the loneliest of your feelings, you are never alone. The truth is that Christ is with you, and Christ's community is with you and for you. And so if you're showing up to church today, or you have people in your life, maybe some of those names that we prayed for a second ago, if those people or you are feeling lonely today, Jesus wants you to know in the passage that we're going to read together, you're not alone. He's with you, always. So if you have a Bible, open it up with me. We're going to be in the Gospel of John. This is the fourth book in your New Testament, if we're flipping there. John chapter 14 is where we're going to be, starting in verse 15. If you don't have a Bible, that's okay. The words are going to be behind me on the screen, so you can follow along with us there. John chapter 14, starting in verse 15. This is Jesus speaking. If you love me, You'll keep my commandments, and I will ask the Father, and he will give you another advocate to be with you forever, 
This is the spirit of truth, whom the world cannot receive because it neither sees him nor knows him. You know him because he abides with you, and he will be in you. I will not leave you orphaned. I'm coming to you. In a little while, the world will no longer see me, but you will see me because I live, you also will live. And on that day, you will know that I am in the Father, and you in me, and I in you. They who have my commandments and keep them are those who love me, and those who love me will be loved by my Father, and I will love them and reveal myself to them. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. How do you prepare someone for something that they don't know is coming? That's the question that Jesus is kind of wrestling with at this point in the scriptures. These words come in the middle of this final night with the disciples. They're commemorating the Passover meal, which we just talked about, Monday, Thursday. We're going to commemorate it in a couple weeks. If you're not signed up, join us. It's a great day. The Passover meal was the annual Jewish reflection on God's liberation of the Hebrews from slavery in Egypt. It's told in the book of Exodus. We can read this story. The meal is amongst many things, a way of remembering that even in their deepest desolation, even in their deepest loneliness and despair, that God was with them and for them, that God heard them and delivered them. And so it seems fitting that Jesus uses this Passover time to remind the disciples of the truth that God is near to them and will be near to them because he knows loneliness is coming for them. He knows something that they don't. In the next 24 hours, he's going to be wrongfully arrested unjustly tried, abused by corrupt religious and political authorities, and then hung on a tree. He knows that he's leaving them. That's actually what he's been saying over the course of the last few hours during this meal. Just a chapter before this, he reminded them that one in their midst is going to betray him, and then another one's going to deny him. And then twice already in chapter 14, he's used the statement, I am going, leaving you. He knows this is happening. And he knows to the disciples that his leaving is going to feel like the ultimate loneliness. Because these are people who have dropped everything in their life to follow him. They've given every bit of the last three years to him. And they believe that he was going to be the one who brought real liberation to them in their time. Who brought real justice and peace in their time. And yet he's saying now he's going to go. He's going to die. The despairing loneliness of the cross looms like a thick fog in this room right now. More than ever, he knows, Jesus knows, that his disciples are going to be tempted to give in to that loneliness. They're going to be tempted to believe that they are really alone. And it's in that precise moment that Jesus emphatically reminds them that that's a lie. Because God is sending another in the person of the Holy Spirit. And that Holy Spirit is the ultimate reminder that we are not alone in three main ways. One, we're not alone because of who the Holy Spirit is. Two, we're not alone because of what the Holy Spirit does. And three, we're not alone because of the community the Holy Spirit forms. Who the Holy Spirit is, what the Holy Spirit does, and the community the Holy Spirit forms. First, who the Holy Spirit is. Any Star Wars fans in the house? Nice. Yeah, a couple. You can write, yeah, see, David walked out. He knew that it was going to be a little embarrassing, so he just said, let me slip out. Star Wars fan. No, Star Wars is great. If you're not a Star Wars fan, that's also okay. Uh, But if you're familiar with the story, or maybe not as familiar, there's an idea central to Star Wars called the Force. 
The force in Star Wars is this mysterious energy that binds all of life together. And in the Star Wars universe, it's an impersonal force. It can actually be utilized by people with good intentions or bad intentions. It doesn't really have its own aim or purpose, and it's this impersonal, distant thing that we can kind of tap into if we work really hard. And many of us, even those of us raised in the church, can sometimes carry that sort of Star Wars-y picture of the spirit into our lives. When we hear the word spirit, we think of some indifferent, unknowable, ethereal, kind of cloud-in-the-sky thing. We think of it as impersonal. Right? And we think maybe we could understand or know or tap into the spirit if we pray really hard or meditate really hard or try really hard. But that's actually way different than what Jesus is saying the spirit is in this passage. He actually doesn't depict the spirit as a thing at all. He depicts it as a person. It's someone, not something. And that person is deeply personal, intimately knowable, and actively involved in the world. The spirit of God depicted to us over the course of the scriptures is the life force of everything. It is the thing that is actively breathing and moving and living amidst us. It is God's power that started everything, that moves in our lives. And Jesus' language describes this over and over. In verse 17, he uses personal pronouns to describe the Spirit. He says he and him over and over. He doesn't say it. And Jesus isn't gendering the Spirit there. It's a Spirit. It's not gendered, right? The point is that this is a personal thing that Jesus is saying. The Holy Spirit is someone we can have real connection with and experience in all areas of our life. It's not an ambiguous thing or force that we have to try really hard to tap into. In other words, God doesn't leave us alone in the world, desperately trying to grasp at some sort of spirituality out there. He says, no, I'm I'm near you. I'm as close as your breath to you. You are constantly able to experience oneness, nearness with me. His language in the rest of this passage says the same sort of thing. In verse 16, he says, I will give you another advocate. Now, we're going to get to the word advocate and what that means, what Jesus is implying about the Spirit here, but I want to focus on that word another, because another is a word that we can kind of overlook in this passage. What does the word another imply? Yeah, additional. There was one that came before, right? Another one, as DJ Coward might say in our culture. And the scriptures actually use that word advocate to describe a person that came before the Holy Spirit. Advocate is a word that's used to describe someone else in the New Testament. Any guesses? No, close. Jesus, always just a good, if you just are wondering if there's a question in church, Jesus oftentimes is a good answer. Just throwing it out there. There's another person described as an advocate. It's Jesus. Jesus is saying that the Holy Spirit is of the same nature as him. Another advocate, just like him. And he doubles down on that connection. Verse 18, he says, I will not leave you orphaned, I am coming to you. And that's a weird statement, because all through this chapter, he's been saying, I'm leaving, I'm going. And now he says, I'm coming. Seems to be contradicting himself, right? Which is it, Jesus? Are you coming or you're going? And Jesus is like, yes, both. I'm leaving you, but I'm also coming to you in the form of the Holy Spirit, in the person of the Holy Spirit. Jesus is saying that even when we feel most alone, we aren't. We can be unified with the very presence and character of God all the time. That's what he means when he says in verse 20 that I'm in the Father and you in me and I in you. There's this divine oneness that we get to participate in, that God is near us and in us and working through us all the time. 
Friends, there's no place you can go where God's love is not with you in your life. There's no dilemma you can face where God's wisdom is not available to you. And there's no loneliness you can feel where God's presence is not near to you. That's a foundational truth that Jesus is reminding his disciples of in one of the loneliest times of their life. Maybe the best reminder I've heard of this is actually a famous prayer uh, that's been attributed in the course of church history to a guy named St. Patrick, who we all just celebrated by wearing green a couple weeks ago. You may remember this. Uh, But I wanted to read his prayer to you because his prayer is remarkable and powerful. He says this as a practice that we can build when we wake in the morning, something we can do every day to start our days. He says, I arise today through God's strength to pilot me, God's might to uphold me, God's wisdom to guide me, God's eyes to look before me, God's ear to hear me, God's word to speak for me, God's hand to guard me, God's way to lie before me, God's shield to protect me, God's hosts to save me. And he continues, Christ with me, Christ before me, Christ behind me, Christ in me, Christ beneath me, Christ above me, Christ on my right, Christ on my left, Christ when I lie down, Christ when I sit down, Christ in the heart of every man who thinks of me, Christ in the mouth of every man who speaks of me, Christ in the eye that sees me, Christ in the ear that hears me, I arise today. I think he covered all the prepositions. Christ is always around us and in us and working by his spirit. And that we are never alone as we arise into our days. And so if those moments of deep loneliness come to you, remember this prayer. We're going to upload it. You can copy-paste it and keep it. You can write it on a post-it note so you can have it. These are going to be in our podcast notes and our YouTube notes. Have this prayer. And remember the remarkable truth that we are not alone because of who the Holy Spirit is. The truth that the Holy Spirit is Jesus with us. It's another person of God, the advocate with us. But it's not just the nature of the Holy Spirit. It's not just who the Holy Spirit is that reminds us we're not alone. It's also what the Holy Spirit does. That's what that word advocate is getting at. That word is multifaceted. It can mean someone who's called into court to witness in favor of someone else. But it can also mean someone who's called in to be an expert and give wisdom in a particular case. It can mean someone who's called to encourage someone else when they're depressed or discouraged. It can mean someone who speaks on behalf of another person who's downtrodden or beaten up. It can mean someone who's called to spark bravery in the face of despair. And that diversity of this word is actually kind of the point. Jesus is communicating that the work of the Holy Spirit is multifaceted. The Spirit is constantly meeting us to help us in times of trouble or need. And whenever we believe that we are alone in the things we go through, Jesus reminds us here that the Holy Spirit is with us in the middle of those things. So when we feel lonely in our times of mourning or grief, we have a comforter in the Holy Spirit. When we feel lonely in our times away from friends and community, we have a friend in the Holy Spirit who encourages us, who builds us up. When we feel lonely in our challenging decisions, we have wise counsel that we can seek from the Holy Spirit. When we feel lonely and like there's nowhere else to go with our feelings, we have a counselor in the Holy Spirit who can listen 
to us, who has all the time in the world to be with us. And when we feel that loneliness that's often too deep for words, we have a Holy Spirit who speaks those words for us through groans, through all of the things that we feel. We have a Holy Spirit that translates our deepest despair into prayer and who holds us in the middle of it. So no matter how lonely we might feel, none of us, as Jesus says, are left as orphans. None of us are really, truly alone. Christ is with us through the power of the Holy Spirit. But it's not just who the Spirit is and what the Spirit does that reminds us we're not alone. It's also the community that the Spirit forms. Question for you. Who's Jesus speaking to in this passage? Disciples, yeah. Disciples, plural. All the times that Jesus uses the word you here, it's in the plural. He's saying y'all. Y'all are going to receive the Spirit, right? Yeah, that's the Southern translation, Southern American translation, the SAT. (laughs) And so we learn in this passage that the Holy Spirit is certainly available to us individually, right? The Holy Spirit walks with us through our individual struggles and journeys, but the Spirit also comes in the midst of community. It's not just an isolated, personalized, kind of island-to-ourselves experience. The Spirit is at work in y'all, in this community. When we collectively say that we are disciples of Jesus and that we are allowing Jesus to shape how we live, we get to experience the Spirit's work in our midst. The Holy Spirit comes to the community of people who love Jesus and are shaped by his commandments. That's why Jesus talks about his commandments here, that we participate in that. The two most important commandments are the two commandments that summarize the whole law. Remember what they are? Love God with all your heart, soul, mind. Love your neighbor as yourself, right? You do those two things. If we collectively as a community practice those two things, the Spirit will be at work in our midst. So Jesus is saying here, we can experience oneness, not aloneness, oneness with God, nearness with God when we practice that together. The community of Christ followers should be a constant reminder to all of us that we're not alone. You guys, the church, when it's faithful and it's called to follow Jesus, it's going to be a place where no one who walks through our doors is truly alone where no person who walks through is actually experiencing true aloneness. The church is a place where no loneliness or isolation is actually unmentionable at all, where we bring it up with one another. We get to walk with one another in it. We get to love one another in it. The church is a place where there's no weakness that's too weak and no strength that's too strong. It's a place of extroverts and introverts. Introverts, we're glad you're here. You're not alone. (laughs) The church is a place where no social reject and no moral outcast and no person divided by the world out there is divided and alone in here. That's so much of what the New Testament picture of the church is all about. In a world that's constantly alienating itself in this abyss of loneliness and isolation, the church unifies. The church welcomes. The church reminds every single one of us that we aren't alone. Right now, turn to your neighbor, the person next to you. Make eye contact and say, you are not alone. Actually, do it. I know some of you are cheating. Actually, I can see you. You are not alone. Thank you, Ryan. Thank you. This new community right here that's formed and guided by the Holy Spirit, it's a radical force that fights against loneliness in a really, really lonely world. And how we do that is really, really important. We need to have practices that can remind us of this, because how often we just kind of cruise through our life and don't really know what's going on in one another's life. We live with the, oh, I'm doing good, and move on when there's deep, deep stuff that we need to engage together. 
We need to walk with one another. And so I want to close our time with a few different practices that I think can help us engage loneliness, engage when we feel alone. The first practice, when we feel lonely, don't run away from it, but also don't dwell in it. Seek the source of it and then bring it before God. See, oftentimes when we feel lonely, we tend to run to two different kind of polar opposites. We run to one end of that spectrum, which is to run away or flee our loneliness. This is always my strategy when I don't want to deal with it. Just run away from it. So I, for me, I'll bury myself in my work or I'll constantly listen to podcasts or constantly try to read or fill my time with people and I just keep running away from my loneliness. Some of you may have a different strategy that you use, but I think you know what I mean. And that actually doesn't really deal with loneliness. It just kind of kicks the can down the road a little bit longer. And eventually, we're going to have to deal with it. But there's another end of the spectrum that's dwelling in our loneliness. Sometimes we can allow our loneliness to define us entirely. We can start to believe the lie that I am alone because I feel lonely. And we just spiral into this vicious and unhealthy cycle of depressive thought where, man, no one really loves me. Right? I'm really deeply alone. And the trouble with both ends of that spectrum, running away or dwelling in it, is that they don't actually deal with the thing itself. And they actually allow us to be defined by our loneliness. The loneliness still controls us, either by procrastination or by allowing it to just send us into despair. Friends, a life with the Spirit of God doesn't mean running from loneliness, and it doesn't mean dwelling in it, but seeking its source, bringing that source before God. It means actively thinking, oh man, I'm lonely. Why is that there? What's going on in me? How can I bring that before God? How can God rework that loneliness in me? How can I remember what's true when I believe the lie that I'm alone? Henry Nouwen, theologian, talks about this. He says, the spiritual task is not to escape your loneliness, not to let yourself drown in it, but to find its source. This is not so easy to do, but when you can somehow identify the place from which these feelings emerge, they'll lose some of their power over you. And this identification isn't an intellectual task. It's a task of the heart. With your heart, you must search for that place without fear. And once we've done that work, once we've identified that source, we can bring that before God. We say, God, this is why I'm feeling lonely. This is the thing that's going on in me. This is the deep emotional or spiritual turmoil that I'm experiencing. And what we find is that God can rework that. God does rework that in us by reminding us of what's true about ourselves and about him. So sometimes our loneliness can be rooted in vocational wrestling. We can just feel like we're not quite in the space we need to be in or the place we need to be in. We feel lonely or trapped in that place. When we identify that source and bring it before God, the Holy Spirit can start to rework it in us. can remind us of, well, that he has us in a place, in a really important place for a reason. And can remind us that he's walking with us where we're headed. That we're not alone in this vocational wrestling or journey. Sometimes our loneliness is born out of a deep, unprocessed grief mourning. But when we identify that, when we dig into the source, don't dwell on it, don't run away from it, but identify the source and bring that before the Spirit of God, we can see God rework that. Form a different sort of story for us, a healing sort of story. One that's not defined by that brokenness. Henry Nouwen said it this way to wrap up that idea. What seemed primarily painful may then become a feeling that, though painful, opens a way for an even deeper knowledge of God's love. That's what our loneliness can do for us. When we remember that even in the deepest parts of ourselves, where we feel the most lonely, that God is still there with us, 
That's a way of experiencing God's love in a deeper way than we had before. It's painful to do, but we end up experiencing this massive picture of who God is. So don't run away from loneliness and don't dwell in it. Seek the source and bring it before God. In order to do that, you've got to emphasize a second practice. Create space for good reflection on your loneliness. Busyness and hurry, you guys, they're perfect ways to avoid holistic health. I say that out of experience. A rapid life is a vapid life. So carve out space in your life for good reflection with God and then with others, too. For me, solitude and silence are the best. I'm the sort of person who's always busy, always talking and thinking and trying to fill my life with things and oftentimes removing myself from the hustle. Spending time in prayer, spending time in scripture, it exposes and unearths all the stuff that couldn't have been if I just kept my busy pace. I need to set that habit, that practice in my life. And there are all sorts of practices like this. Maybe it's a practice of scripture reading or a prayer structure for you. Maybe it's a regular check-in with someone else. Ideally, it's all of those at some point. But wherever you are right now, start building that habit. Whatever gives you the ability to check in on yourself, to see why that check engine light is maybe popped on in your soul. And then to bring that before God. It's a crucial, crucial thing. So build a practice. And then the third practice for us. Invite trusted others into your loneliness. You guys, none of us is an island. We all belong to one another. And when we buy into the lie that we are strong enough to do life without needing each other, then our weaknesses are just going to fester. They'll never get addressed, they'll never get healed, and we'll keep pushing ourselves farther and farther from one another. When we think that we're strong enough to do life without others, we deceive ourselves. But when we invite others into our weakness, into our loneliness, what we find is that they can strengthen us. And that we can strengthen them when we are invited into their loneliness. It becomes this mutuality where we get to encourage one another with truth in the middle of the lie that I am alone. Dietrich Bonhoeffer talked about this in his book, Life Together. He said, the Christian needs another Christian who speaks God's word to them. They need them again and again when they become uncertain and discouraged or lonely. For by themselves, they cannot help themselves without belying the truth. We need our brother or sister as a bearer and proclaimer of the divine word of salvation. We need our brother or our sister solely because of Jesus Christ. Christ in our own heart, it's weaker than the Christ in the word of our brother or sister. Our own heart is uncertain. Our brothers or sisters is sure. We are reminded of the truth of who God is when we bring our loneliness before one another and are told that truth. And we get to speak that truth to one another. And I think it's really important, too, to make sure that the space that you do that in is with close and trusted people. You don't share everything all the time with everyone. But our hope is that this community can be a place where some of those deep, trusted relationships can be formed. It takes time, but develop those relationships. A close-knit group of people, if that's in your community group, if that's somebody on Sundays that you see on a regular basis, somebody that you're texting throughout the week, whatever it looks like, build those spaces. I'm down to be that sort of person with you, but there's many people in this room who can be. Leaders in our community who can walk with you in the middle of your loneliness. They just need to be invited in. So that's the third practice. Invite others in to your loneliness. To close our time, I want to actually reflect a bit on the words of Jesus that close out this passage with his disciples. Remember, they're experiencing this deep, profound loneliness. And at the end of this chapter, he says these words. 
peace I leave with you. My peace I give to you. I don't give as the world gives. Do not let your hearts be troubled. Don't be afraid. Because remember, he's coming to us. He has come to us in the Holy Spirit. You guys, whatever you've carried with you into this place, you don't carry it alone. Whatever you're heading out of this place towards, you don't go there alone. When you receive Jesus' love and grace and allow it to start to shape you, you walk in the presence and power of the Holy Spirit who is with you in all things, who is an advocate for you in all things. When you place your trust in him, whether that's for the first time today, whether that's for the thousandth time today, whether you're returning after a long journey, the Holy Spirit walks with you. And the community that the Holy Spirit forms is here to walk with you. Remember that radical truth. You are not alone. Christ is with you. Let's pray, friends. Mm-hmm.